follow Jesus, why would you give up your life uh, to follow him? And we've seen so far, we've seen what Jesus has come to do, and that's he's come to give his life for us. We've seen who Jesus' ministry is for, which is for everyone. Last week, we looked at what Jesus actually came to do, and he came to forgive us. He became to forgive us of our sins. And so this morning, we're going to look at the question of what makes one worthy of that. In general, what makes one worthy of Jesus? So we're in chapter 7, looking at verses 1 to 10 this morning. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word found in the book of Luke, chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now Centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under or set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house They found the servant well. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning for a miracle. And by miracle, we pray that you would soften hardened hearts, that you would open our eyes and our ears by your grace alone, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, that we would leave here changed people by your grace. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. Well, in the celebrity tabloid culture that we swim in, whether we like it or not, right, we have all become too familiar with the professional athlete who wins over our hearts by their incredible athletic ability, but oftentimes um, falls from glory pretty quickly when some story breaks of a moral failure in their life or perhaps an arrest or maybe they were caught, or caught using Illegal drugs, performance-enhancing drugs to do um, their jobs, whatever. Names like Lance Armstrong or Tiger, Tiger Woods probably quickly come to mind. And so when this story breaks, right, we huddle around the TV and, and the social media sphere, and we get the latest details, the latest scandal. And, of course, without doubt, one of the very first things that happens when something like this goes down with an athlete is they, what, they lose their endorsements, um, and uh, questions of should this company stay with this individual and so on and so forth. But all the time, most of the time, they, they just they, they, they vanish. For Lance Armstrong, Nike, Oakley, gone, right? For Tiger Woods, Buick, AT&T, gone. One day we're best friends. The next day there's somebody cuter coming around the block, so to speak. 
and why wouldn't they be? You know, this isn't really to defend their decision, right? Who wants to associate themselves with such mess and scandal and foolishness, right? That's not good for business, so that's why they do what they do. But what do celebrity endorsements have to do with our text this morning? What does it take to get God's endorsement of you? In other words, what is it that makes you worthy before God? What is it that makes you acceptable before him? So this is the question we're after this morning. Because as it turns out, the God of the Bible actually longs and is interested in being associated with people who are a mess. With people whose lives are scandal and such foolishness. See, for Nike, Buick, and Oakley, they will endorse you as long as what? As you perform well, as long as you stay on that bike, as long as you do well on the golf course. But the God of the Bible is profoundly different, and this text shows us this so well. That is that the God of the Bible only endorses you when you admit that you've messed up. That you yourself are, in fact, one big scandal. In other words, the paradox of Christianity for us is that we are only found worthy before God when we are able to acknowledge our unworthiness. Our need, then, for Jesus to come in and make us worthy. And the beauty of Jesus and Christianity is that it is the only religion and the only place where admittance Approval and acceptance is found not on your ability to prove yourself, but actually on your recognition that you can never prove yourself enough. Instead, acceptance is found on the basis of faith. That Jesus, the Son of God, has come to make you worthy before God by his blood through his cross. And so, to show us this this morning, two points that are not in your bulletin. Why the Jewish leaders think the centurion is worthy of Jesus. That's the first thing we're going to look at. And then the second thing, why the centurion is actually worthy of Jesus. Okay? So why do the Jewish leaders think the centurion is worthy of Jesus? Why is the centurion actually worthy of Jesus? So let's look at the first one. Why the Jewish leaders think the centurion is worthy. And the reason the centurion, or the reason the Jewish elders think... That the centurion is worthy for them to go to Jesus and for Jesus to come to him is because basically he's just a good guy. Um, some of you may or may not know, I've joined a fraternity in college. And, and whether you're familiar, familiar with that process, you know that um, the way that fraternity or Greek systems usually work is there's this thing called rush that happens at the beginning of each year. And rush is where all these Students, usually freshmen, go from house to house and sort of get to know the, the, the brothers in the house and find out if this is a place they want to be. And at some point, at the end of Rush, the, the members of that house have to get together and decide on who we're going to extend a bid to. Like, who is worthy to, to come into this house, right? And we think that we're just so important and, and all that. Um, I was also thankful uh, for my then RUF campus minister. At the time, his patience to realize how much sin I was in by doing this, but that's another story. But this process is always interesting, and it was never without a doubt that, that as, as, as the room gathered or filled up in order to discuss why somebody should or shouldn't be let into this place, right? 
what made someone worthy always came down to something superficial. Like, well, where'd they go to high school? Where are they from? Right. What kind of friends do they have? Can they pay their dues was actually a pretty good, good one to ask. What about their grades? Can they get the girls, right? Whatever that would mean. Things like this and this nature. And so no matter how much arguing went on as to whether or not someone should or shouldn't get this bid, the basis for whether we should go, would go, um, the basis for whether we would do this would go something like this. Somebody would stand up and give this final plea about this individual. And it would always be something like this. Look, y'all. You just, you maybe you just don't know him that well, but I tell you, I, I swear, he is a good guy. He's Sigma Chi material. And at some point, no matter what had been talked about at that, up, up to that point, the words good guy just have, they have some kind of control over us. You know, is this to sort of forget about everything that was said before, all the cons. If he's a good guy, then let's get him in here. He needs to be in here, right? And there's, you know, maybe because there's something deep down inside all of us that just wants to be a good guy. We want to be around good guys or good gals, you know, whatever that is, right? Well, something similar is playing out here in this text. The Jewish elders go to Jesus on behalf of this Roman captain. That's what a centurion is. Because, well, he's just a good guy. I mean, generally speaking, these two groups were often at odds with each other. You didn't find these groups associating Jewish elders, uh, people of importance and people of um, authority and respectability within their communities. And then there's the opposition, right? There's Rome. And then on, along with Rome are its captains and its, its army. And that's who the centurion represents. But here we find that they're actually buds, that there's actually a relationship here. And we find out why in verses 4 to 5 as the centurions, or as the elders go on behalf of the centurion. And what is it that they say? Why are they going on behalf of him? Well, he, he loves our nation. He built us a church. He loves our people. Jesus, he deserves this. In other words, he's a pretty good guy. And that's what makes him worthy enough in their eyes to go to Jesus to do him a favor. I mean, you build me a church, like you build me a church, I'm going to get you a meeting with Darwin, right? (laughs) That's just all there is to it. You say you like the PCA, I might get you some time with Steve, right? We'll just see where that goes. But (laughs) this is the exchange As we'll see later, the elders, though, they represent everything that really saddens Jesus about Israel at this point. They don't see that what makes the centurion worthy is not that he's a good guy, but that Jesus is. And that those who have faith in him, that they actually become good guys, as it were. They become worthy because of who Jesus makes them by his perfect obedience and his blood. This is why trying to live a good life and doing the best that you could and hoping you've done enough for God to let you into heaven is so counter Jesus and his gospel because it's really making it all about us. But also because according to scripture, there are no good guys. There's only one and his name is Jesus and he's the star of this text. This whole book, actually. And all and of all the people who should know this about God and then, you know, and themselves, it's these Jewish elders who have come to Jesus on behalf of the centurion. And why? Because he deserves it. 
He loves us. He's one of us. He's Jewish material. I don't know, whatever, whatever they were thinking. Look, grace doesn't go out to good guys. And I got to remind myself of that. Grace only goes out to people who do not deserve it, but get it anyways. And this is why the Jewish elders think the centurion is worthy because he's good. But they are about to find out that's not why Jesus helps him. Before we move on, uh, one of the ways to recognize what gospel we are believing and how it is shaping us is often by the motives that we have for helping others. And there's something interesting that we get to do this morning. We're going to do this in both points. But here uh, to that end, I I want to contrast uh, the helpers of this text, which are the Jewish elders, with the helpers of the text that we looked at last week with the paralytic, which are just the nobodies, the people we don't really know much about. See, the helpers here are Jewish. They're Jewish elders, as we said. They're respected, probably well-known in their communities. Right? And they come to Jesus on behalf of the centurion to heal his servant. The helpers last week that we looked at, we don't really know anything about them. There's nothing mentioned about them, actually. Well, all we know is that they went to some extraordinary lengths to come take some individual and bring them before Jesus. The Jewish leaders go to Jesus here in this text, though, because the centurion, what, loves their nation and did something really, really great for them. The helpers last week don't come to Jesus saying anything. They just lower him through a roof and they just let Jesus deal with it. (laughs) Make his own decisions. See, we are often people who move towards others conditionally. It's kind of a human problem. We ask, are they worth it? Do they deserve my help and my time and my attention? Will they benefit me? Will they benefit my career, my social status in any way if I do this for them? In other words, our motives for helping people are often caught up with who we think that we are. A question we asked two weeks ago. Who do we think we are? But it's the gospel that has to shape that for us and shapes how we answer that question. If we think we are worthy of Jesus's gospel, then that creates a condition for others to meet before we move towards them in any way. But if we know we are not worthy and that we don't deserve the grace of God, then our love is characterized by those in the story we read last week. A sort of self-forgetfulness kind of love that doesn't ask if someone is worthy before we move towards them or not. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus always brings a mutuality to those that it meets. It's a sort of a same-as-you-and-me-ness. It's a recognition that I'm just a beggar who has found bread and I'm here to sort of help other beggars find that bread as well. Does your gospel bring mutuality among all you come in contact with? Because a gospel that brings mutuality will always lead us to loving the unlovable regardless of who they are or what they've done. And why looking at our motives for moving towards others is often the best indicator for how we understand Jesus' gospel in the first place. Is the gospel we are believing bringing this kind of mutuality, leveling the playing field because we are all beggars? Do you see yourself tied to each other because of that? Or is there really a condition that others must meet before they are found worthy of your time, of your attention, and your love 
Those are some good questions for small groups tonight. Why the Jewish elders think the centurion is worthy? It's because he's a good guy. But let's move on to this next point. Why is the centurion actually worthy of Jesus' attention? It's because he actually recognizes his unworthiness in this text. And thus, Jesus' ability to make him worthy. I used to grow up, and this might be hard to believe, thinking that I was important. And I stressed the word used, right? If I had, I had a proofread list, she probably would have deleted that, right? But I used to grow up thinking I was, I was important. And here's what I mean. Some of you know that uh, when I was six years old, my family moved from a suburb of Chicago to a two-traffic light town called Dayton, Tennessee, to open up a McDonald's. Like, yes, burgers and fries, a McDonald's restaurant. Um, my dad had applied for the opportunity to do that four years prior to this. And uh, he didn't know much about McDonald's. In fact, I found out recently that he would work on his day, on his day off. He would work at McDonald's just to learn a little bit about the, the business, the system, in case they did call. Um, and just to be ready for that opportunity, I find that fascinating. And inspiring. Um, they call, the call did come, and so we moved below the Mason-Dixon line. I didn't know what that was at the time. And for the next two years, my dad worked really insane hours in the stores, just learning the system and, 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 and just putting all of his blood, sweat, and tears into, into this. And probably asking the question, did I just move my family to Dayton, Tennessee? Right, Something I've kind of been thinking about myself recently, too. Did I just move to Texas? Um, not so much anymore. We're good here. Um, my parents actually still live, though, in Dayton, Tennessee for 33 years later. Hmm. At six, I knew none of this, okay? I, I didn't know what had gone into all of this, right? All I knew um, is that this was my dad's store. And if I wanted to go in and get a chocolate shake, who's going to stop me, right? Who's going to stop me? That made me feel important. My parents reminded me of a time uh, when I was eight after a baseball game. We were in the dugout. We were so excited about the win that I just stood up and yelled, free, you know, ice cream at McDonald's. Let's go. (laughs) And uh, the whole team showed up. And I learned that night that it wasn't as free as I thought. Um, It's my first lessons in small business ownership. But it was fun, and it had its perks, especially if you wanted a Big Mac. But it wasn't until much later in life that I recognized that all those times that I would enter the store and sort of break through the counter with sort of this uh, air of importance um, and into the kitchen to you know, help myself to a cheeseburger or whatever it was, I wasn't able to do that because there was something worthy of me to do that. I didn't deserve that. I didn't earn that, right? It wasn't because of me. It was actually because of somebody else. I was only able to do that because of my dad and who he was and consequently who he made me. Oh, him? That's just Bill's son, right? Get him whatever he wants. This is what Jesus does for us as it pertains to the kingdom, right? We are made heirs to God's kingdom. We become sons and daughters of his, not because of who we are, not because of uh, who we are found, not because there's something found worthy in us, in and of us, but because of who Jesus is and consequently who Jesus makes us by faith in him. Children of God. Which means that the only condition for being or becoming a child of God, the only thing that actually makes you worthy before him, turns out to be admitting your unworthiness in the first place. Acknowledging that before him. 
That it's not me who makes me worthy or important. It's someone else, in fact, that it's Jesus. And it's because of Jesus that we have access, as it were, to all that is his, right? This is the gospel. This is what the centurion recognizes in himself. That he is unworthy. And it's why the centurion is actually worthy to have Jesus come to him and heal his servant. In verse 6 there, if you look, the elders come to Jesus and they ask him to come to the captain's house to help his servant. And Jesus goes. But on the way, something happens that we don't really expect. Friends of the centurion are sent to Jesus saying, look, don't come in here. Don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come in my home. And we don't expect this to happen because where in the world would a Roman centurion, a captain of that importance, say to a Jewish person that you are unworthy to come be with me? (laughs) If anything, it was the other way around. But this is what happens. And the centurion continues. He doesn't doesn't sort of sort this this like self-deprecation. Please see that. He says, like, look. I am not worthy to even be in this man's presence. But here's what I do know. Say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority. In other words, I'm a man under orders. I also give orders. I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. Right? He gets this. You see, somehow, I, I don't know, the text doesn't tell us... But he knows this about Jesus. He, and he also knows that he's unworthy to have him come to be in his house. But he also knows that Jesus is fully capable and willing to heal his servant because Jesus, is both, Jesus both has authority and is under authority to do so. And this, friends, marvels Jesus. He's marveled. He's taken aback by it. Why? Because the Roman captain of all people in this story likens faith in Jesus to that of military orders. Which if the brass send an order out, it's as good as done. Therefore, all Jesus has to do is say the words. And this, friends, is exactly what Jesus has been looking for. You almost get it in in just the desperation, certainly at the end of the story, that this is what he's been looking for. He's been looking for somebody to have some type of faith in who he is. And look, it's not some robust intellectual faith that gets Jesus all excited. It's the most simple kind of trust that he found, and it's enough. It's enough. And Jesus is marveling at it. He loves it. And I wonder if there's a lesson here for some of us and how we can tend to over-intellectualize this faith. Don't miss the simplicity of it. What's the beauty of this faith, though? It's a faith that recognizes that there's nothing in me or about me as important as I might think that I am in my circles that warrants Jesus to come to me. But because of who he is, it's beside the point. He can do it. A man of and under authority. He is able to do what we ask just by saying the words. In other words, this faith is about someone else. And ultimately, how that someone makes me worthy and truly important. 
And this is why the centurion is actually worthy. He recognizes his unworthiness and Jesus' ability to make him worthy. And one of the ways that we know that the gospel, that we are believing for any, or excuse me, that we are believing is truly for any who admit their unworthiness before Jesus and look only to him for his worth by faith is by the diversity of the followers of that gospel. In other words, is the gospel you believe able to bring paralytics and Roman captains to the same table? Just as we contrasted the helpers, let's contrast the main characters of these stories or sort of the main characters of these stories, leaving out Jesus for a second. Luke gives us two people here to, on opposite ends of the quote-unquote social slash important spectrum of this day, a paralytic and a Roman captain. You could argue that each of those in their own respectful ways deserve to be on those sides of the, not deserve, but are on those sides of the spectrum. That there couldn't be somebody less important than a paralytic. And in the same sense, there couldn't be somebody more important than a Roman captain, at least in his circles. But what Luke does for us here is he shows us how both of these people are absolutely leveled at the cross. They are leveled in their sins and their trespasses, all needing the grace of God in their lives. And thus now sit around the same table in God's kingdom. In other words, friends, what Jesus comes to bring and what he offers and what his kingdom is about reaches from paralytics on one side all the way in this day and age to Roman captains on the other and everyone in between. That's compelling to me. And it should be compelling to you as well as you see the inclusiveness of the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring. What society... What club, what fraternity, should I say, has a gospel this big and powerful and that can do this? And see, this is what is supposed to make the church the church. We have a gospel that is big enough and powerful enough to bring every person from every walk of life, from every nation, tribe, and tongue into the same kingdom under the same king. No one has a gospel like this, which is why the world needs this gospel. Amen? Where in the world or where is the world or your neighbor hearing that acceptance, that endorsement of you, that entrance into a kingdom like this comes not at the point of having it all together, but actually admitting that you don't. Where are your friends hearing that? Where is the world being invited to get off the treadmill of life, so to speak, in order to stop proving themselves worthy? Where are they trying so hard to become worthy through their performance, their exceptionalism, their name, their looks, their wealth, and their status? Where is the world hearing that you need someone to make you worthy and acceptable? And he is so ready to do that. He is so ready to give you his worth and his status and his name. And all you have to do to get it is to get off that treadmill. Stop making yourself worthy. And see, you don't need money to do that. You don't need wealth. You don't need status. You don't have to come from a certain family or or from a certain nation or speak a certain language to get off that treadmill. All you have to be able to do is look to Jesus for your worth. 
This is why one of the ways you know that the gospel you're believing is truly for any who admit their unworthiness before Jesus and look only to him for their worth is by the diversity of the followers of that gospel. Is it big enough to bring paralytics and Roman captains under and around the same table and kingdom? How big is your gospel, friends? What makes one worthy? Is it the cross that makes them worthy or something else? Diversity of followers will show you this. And isn't this the church universal? Right? We have brothers and we have sisters all over this world because we are united by Jesus Christ. A gospel that says to every one of us, you want to be found worthy? Get off the treadmill and let me make you worthy by my blood. Who can't do that? Who is this not for? It's for anybody who won't ask for it. (laughs) And that's an invitation for all of us this morning. So we've seen why the elders think that the centurion is worthy. And we've seen why he's actually worthy. Where do you, where do we go from here? And this is where we're going to end it. Friends, where do you need grace this morning? Where do you need grace this morning? The centurion woke up this morning and he found himself helpless to heal his servant, someone he clearly cared a lot about. And he felt helpless to do anything unless someone else did. He needed grace for himself and for his servant. Where do you need it this morning? Our text ends in verse 9 as Jesus turns to those who were following him. These are Jewish elders for sure, those who went, but others as well. And he says to them, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. It sounds like he's sort of scolding them and even a little angry. And perhaps he, he maybe is, but he, he's actually looking for something. He's looking for something. He's looking for something that he's not finding in those that grace has been extended to first, which is Israel. And that's faith. It's trust in him. Eugene Peterson puts it this way in verse 9. He says, it's almost as Jesus saying, I've yet to come across this kind of simple trust anywhere in Israel. The very people who are supposed to know about God and how he works. Jesus is here. He's on this earth. And he's in Capernaum. He's in the countryside walking and looking and longing to find any crumb of faith in order to bestow his grace upon you. And where we look to Jesus in faith to make us worthy, Jesus looks to the cross to secure that worth. And as Jesus cries out on Calvary, your worth and your acceptance is finished. It is secured. Grace always brings us back to that. So where do you need that this morning? Where do you need it? Is it your lack of faith? Is it your indifference? Is it your apathy? Is it your unbelief? Is it your self-righteousness? Is it your lust or your greed or your pride? Where? Where do you need it? Ask for it. Jesus is looking for a place to extend his favor 
and he will give it. After all, he gave it to a Roman captain of all people. How much more for those who know of Jesus' cross and trust that they are truly found worthy because of it. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this sort of almost throwaway story that happened in the Capernaum countryside of a Roman captain who believed in what you could do. And I pray for myself and I pray for the elders in this church and I pray for the members and those visiting and those who would ever come that you would give us just a seed of the faith that we see in this individual. That we might experience then the overflowing love and the the unlimited grace that Jesus so longs to extend to those who will believe him. Would we ask him for the things that we need and we meet him there and see on the cross where we are made and found acceptable because of what he did, not because of what we did. And we find that to be the place that we go to and run to today and until we see him face to face. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.